You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Better. That's the theme of Hebrews. Jesus is better. And in verse 4, we see that he is much superior, which means that he is way better. Thirteen times throughout the book of Hebrews, the author is going to show us that Jesus is way better than anything and everything that you are currently impressed by in your life right now or ever will be. And he'll do this by using different examples of things that Christians in the first century had begun to elevate, things that were drawing their attention away from Jesus, distractions. And I don't mean distractions in like a sound that's sort of annoying. I mean distractions in the sense of like something that is stopping you from seeing someone or something clearly. And every generation of Christians has them. There's certain things that have been elevated to the place that Jesus alone belongs. And so where he begins is by showing us that Jesus is far greater than what? Well, everything, but particularly angels. Now, before you're like, "Um, okay, I'll give you that. Angels are impressive beings. I mean, just a survey of the scriptures. Angels are extremely impressive. And I'm going to talk about angels in the present tense because angels are just as real and involved in the world as they ever were. The Bible describes angels in different ways. We read of the seraphim, the burning ones with six wings praising God in the heavenly sanctuary. We read of the cherubim described as having four wings. With two, they fly. With two, they cover their feet. They have four faces, human, lion, ox, and eagle. That's weird. 
There are angels with drawn swords. There are angels that deliver messages like Gabriel. There are ministering angels. There are fallen angels. Angels ministered to Jesus after he'd been in the wilderness for 40 days. The angel at Jesus' tomb had the appearance of lightning. His clothing were as white as snow. Mark says, as if they had been bleached. Appreciate that note, Mark. Angels ministered to Jesus. Angels showed up at the tomb. They fly, they fight, they defend, they worship. Angels play a very important role in God's kingdom and in nature itself. And for the Hebrew people specifically, probably the most important thing that angels ever did was that they helped deliver the Mosaic law. Now, this is something sort of alluded to in the Old Testament, but even the New Testament writers like Paul in Galatians 3 seems to believe that angels were involved in the process of people, Israel, Moses, receiving the Mosaic law as mediators. And so angels are so impressive and have such a key role that their appearance at times in Scripture caused people to bow down and desire to worship them. Even the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, sees an angel, falls down before him and begins to worship him. And the angel says, hey man, nah, get up on your feet. I'm a fellow servant. You shouldn't worship me. Worship God. Now, I know because I felt this the whole week preparing for this. I know that this does not initially seem very relevant to life right now. And you're probably here thinking, I have quite literally never been tempted to worship an angel in my life, ever. Maybe you can't even think of the last time you thought of an angel. So if the first century church was guilty of overemphasizing angels, maybe we're a little bit guilty of ignoring their existence. But what I want you to do is to consider the way that we in the 21st century have elevated certain important figures to sort of mythological heights. Where there's normal people, and then there's the special group of extraordinary people that we adore, that we're enamored by. We study their lives. We obsess about their accomplishments. We make sure we see all of their movies or all of their reels. This can be athletes, this can be musicians, this can be an actor, this can be a successful business person, this can be an influencer, this can be someone set apart in their field, even, ho- even high-profile pastors. Those figures may change, but what happens is that trend continues today. In the first century, it was venerating angels, but today we call it something else. We call it celebrity culture which is defined like this, a preoccupation with famous persons and an extravagant value attached to the lives of public figures. Okay, when I was a boy, I loved watching Michael Jackson performances. And I remember specific performances where he would just come out and stand on stage like a statue. Before performing, not dancing, not singing, not doing anything distinctly Michael Jackson. He would just stand there. And then every once in a while, he'd turn his head. And people would lose their freaking minds. I'm serious. People, crowds would cheer. Fans would begin to shake. 
People were crying uncontrollably. They would have to take people away on stretchers and ambulance people away from the, uh, from the stadium by just being in the presence of this like mythological figure. It was almost as if they were standing in the presence of an angel. But don't you see, the world is desperately looking for someone to adore, someone worthy to be praised, someone worthy to be followed and admired and even imitated. And yet what we're willing to do is to settle for less. And so whether we recognize it or not, that deep down desire to be amazed, to be in the presence of these extraordinary figures is really just a deep down craving to see God, to be moved and captivated by his glory, a glory that the author of Hebrews is going to tell us is found in Jesus. And every generation of the church has those certain things or those certain people that have been elevated to the place that Jesus alone belongs. Unfortunately, it's most of the time in hindsight that we identify those things, but every generation has their thing. And because of this, every generation, including ours reality and the generations represented here, we need the same reminder, that same timeless word, Jesus is way better. And the author is confident that once you see Jesus in all of his glory, everything else in your life is going to begin to pale in comparison. Once you actually see Jesus through eyes of faith, everything else will pale in comparison. In fact, he says, let's compare. Let's compare. Let me show you all the ways that Jesus is better. And what the author does is quotes several Old Testament passages. I'll put them up on the screen for just a moment. If you have a Bible with little footnotes, you'll see them here. What he does is he quotes from Psalm 2-7, 2 Samuel 7-14, Psalm 89-26-27, Deuteronomy 32-43, Psalm 104-4, Psalm 45, 6 through 7, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, Psalm 102, 25 through 27, and Psalm 110, 1. And he assumes you know all those verses, by the way. He's like, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Here and 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 here. And what he does is he shows us from Scripture. And this is what I want to do today as well. Show you from Scripture all the ways that Jesus is better. By comparing Oh yeah? Angels delivered the word of God? Guess what? Jesus is the word of God. Oh yeah? Angels have the role of servants? Guess what? Jesus alone has the title of son. Oh yeah? Angels praise God? Guess what? Jesus is praised as God. Angels are created being. Jesus is the eternal creator. Angels are ministers. Jesus alone is the anointed Messiah. Angels are very glorious, but Jesus alone is the radiance of the glory of God. And while angels have this really important job of serving God and the kingdom of God and all of creation, it is Jesus alone that provides salvation. Jesus is way better. Okay? So we're going to look at this passage under two headings. There's so much to cover here. But we're going to look first at the status of Jesus. I have an old friend that tells this story of when he was a young boy, there was a fire station right next to his house. Whenever he wanted, he would walk into that fire station, 
would jump up in the trucks, play around with the equipment like he owned the place. He'd hit the lights on, he'd honk the horns. Again, he, he acted like he owned the place and no one stopped him. Why? Why this kind of access? Why this kind of privilege? Why this kind of freedom? Because of whose son he was. His dad was the captain of the fire station. And because the only son of the captain had certain privileges, unique privileges that no one else had. And the application is this. Being the only son means access. It means power. And it means a status that no one else but Jesus can claim. Look with me again in verses four through five. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent or way better than theirs, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. Today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Which angel did he say that to? So the author of Hebrews is quoting two very royal passages. Psalm 2 describes King David's coronation service. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we have the Davidic covenant. It's God's promise to David that his future offspring will be raised up to assume the position of the anointed king, the rescuing king. And the author of Hebrews is doing something very interesting here. He is saying these have an immediate fulfillment in David, but they have a long-term and everlasting fulfillment in Jesus. These passages in the Old Testament point us forward to Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully human, is the only eternal son of God and is the only true son of David according to his human lineage. So angels are excellent. Angels are beautiful. But no angel has this claim. There are many angels who minister. There are many angels who serve. There are many who accomplish very important things for God. But only the unique Son of God is capable of saving us, restoring us, and ruling and reigning over us as our Messiah King. Now, the most famous passage in Scripture, at least it was when I was growing up, was John 3.16 that says, you should have this memorized by now, by the way, for God so loved the world that he gave his only what? His only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the only son. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking, like I would be too, why are you pressing this point so much? Why, why are you emphasizing, okay, I get it, I get it. Why is this so important? And the answer is because to this day, there are false religions, and I don't just mean out there, I mean in our city, in our sphere of influences, probably even in our friendship circles, false religions claiming to be Christianity that say Jesus was not the only son of the Father but that Jesus was the first of many spirit children conceived between heavenly father and some sort of heavenly mother figure. They claim that Jesus at one point was not God, 
But he had to prove himself by his accomplishments in order to achieve that status. They claim that one of God's other children, supposedly Jesus' brother, is Satan himself. And they claim that Jesus shouldn't be worshipped because he is less than God the Father. This is not Christianity. So please do not let anyone fool you and convince you you're on the same team. Do not let someone hijack Christian doctrine and Christian faith with these false claims. This is just as important today as it was 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the unique and only son. Look at me in verse 6. And again, he brings the first, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Let all the angels worship the firstborn son. Now you maybe think, okay, firstborn, what is being said there? What this does not mean is that Jesus is created. That's also a heresy, but that's an older heresy that goes back to the earliest days of the church. It was called Arianism, and it's a historically condemned idea. The idea was that Jesus at one point was a created being. Christian doctrine says, no, no, he wasn't. You guys still with me? Important foundational things here. In fact, the Nicene Creed then responded with this truthful statement. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence of the Father. Why are you guys always doing, talking about historic Christianity? Because the stakes are high. And because the same nonsense keeps getting recirculated thousands of years later. Firstborn in scripture has to do with status and it has to do with rank. In fact, there's a really interesting story of King David. Maybe you're familiar with this. It's right before King David, as a boy, kills Goliath. Saul, he's wilding out. He can't be king for long anymore. The anointing's gone. And so the prophet comes to the house of Jesse, and he's like, God's anointed is among your sons. Gather them up. I'm going to determine which one's going to be the next king of Israel. Jesse gathers all of his sons from the oldest to the youngest, and the prophet's like, no, no, no. Mm-mm. Wait, do you have any more sons? And Jesse's like, we got the baby of the family, David, the little runt. He's like in the backyard playing with sheep or something. And the prophet's like, bring him forward. And he anoints him as king. King David, who was not the eldest child, he was the runt of the family, the youngest in the family, is called firstborn in Psalm 89, one of the passages quoted here. And so what that means is that in the ancient world, this title was a legal status that someone would inherit, which means they inherit the power, the wealth, And the position. That's what's being said here about Jesus. As Jesus has the full rights to the power, to the wealth, and to the position of the Father, he is to be praised as God. Let all angels worship him. So I was at Costco yesterday. Not a very worshipful experience. Anyone been to Costco lately? 
Yes, okay, well, not a very worshipful experience. And then you saw what I saw, Christmas decor. They skip over Halloween and Thanksgiving, they go straight to Christmas. So I feel like this illustration is, is now relevant in late September. Now, if you remember the, the familiar Christmas passage in Luke, it's when all the shepherds were out to field, they're with their sheep, and the angel of the Lord appears to these shepherds to announce this amazing news that a child will be born in the city of David. He will be the rescuing king. He's the promised Messiah that we've all been waiting for. And the very moment that the angel pronounced Jesus as king, we're told this in Luke chapter two, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. At the pronouncement of Jesus, all of heavenly hosts Cry out, glory to God, worthy to be praised. So my question for, this, for us sort of midway here is this. If such marvelous beings, if such marvelous beings such as angels, worship at the name of Jesus being spoken, how much more should we, lowly humans, worship him as well? How much more should we worship him, the only son? Let's look secondly and finally at the sovereignty of Jesus. Verses eight through nine. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So at this time, when a royal son came of age, they would receive, formally receive their title as king, despite always being the son, there would be a coronation ceremony. This is what's being described here. So Jesus isn't just the unique son of God, but he is the royal son of God who is seated on the throne of a kingdom with no end, who alone receives the title of king. And we're, we know this because the scepter is in his hands. You guys know what a scepter is? I wish I would have had a visual for that. I don't, I'm sorry. But a scepter was like a rod. And it was this rod that was held by royalty during ceremonial occasions as an emblem or as a symbol that this person is in charge. This person has the authority. This person has the power over the kingdom. And the anointing oil was the oil that was put on, intended to be put on the messianic king. So Jesus was always the heir. Jesus was always the only son Jesus has always been God. But through his life, his death, and his resurrection, where he conquered sin and death, and through his ascension, where he is now seated at the right hand of God in majesty, through this process of death, resurrection, and ascension, 
His reign as king was established and it was inaugurated and his sovereignty as king was declared throughout all time and space. Okay, so we've laid all the theological foundation for this passage. There was a lot to cover there, wasn't there? So here's an important question. Then where's Jesus? Like, you're like, okay, all that fancy, like, throne, scepter, majesty talk. Okay, but, like, where's Jesus? Like, that's the question we're asking when life gets challenging and Mondays come around. We're not thinking about majesty and glory. You're like, where's Jesus? This was an important question for the first century Christians, and it's an important one for us today. Because the truth is, we're going to struggle to believe, we're going to struggle to trust, we're going to struggle to obey a king that we can't see in the flesh. Especially when our lives and our world feel like they're out of control. Like all that power and control talk, why are things so chaotic? And this was part of the reason that the first century Hebrew Christians began to revert back to their old religious traditions and religious practices, right? Like, I can hear the Torah, and I can see the priests, and, and I can even smell the animal sacrifices. And you know what? Even once in a while, angels show up. It's the stuff I can take in my hands. It's the stuff that I can feel as tangible and, and, and real. That's, that's what we need right now. It's something real, something tangible, something I can hold on to and see. It's the reason we revert back as well. Whether this involves elevating people, whether it involves pursuing sexual partners, whether it involves striving to obtain more wealth, and more stuff, we bow the knee to things. We bow the knee to technologies. We bow the knee to bodies that are observable and audible and touchable. We settle for less. We, we offer our allegiance to things that I think deep down we know pale in comparison to Jesus. We forfeit the eternally real for what's temporarily satisfying. So where is Jesus? Well, Hebrews tells us that he is seated at the right hand of God. And he is alive and well. That was perfect timing, by the way. <laughs> and he is alive and well. And right now, he is waiting for the day to make all of his enemies, sin, death, Satan, the wicked, his footstool. When he will return in power to execute his perfect justice, where Jesus will make everything wrong right again, when he will reign on earth as he currently reigns in heaven. And even just by kind of like these looks like, there's almost this like, I'm not really satisfied with that answer. And I'm going to be honest, that's like hard to hold on to Monday morning when life hits you hard. But this is the answer that we need to know, and this is the answer that we need to hear far more than we realize it. We've all heard the Sunday school answers. Where's Jesus? He's everywhere. Where's Jesus? He's in my heart. 
And while the Bible does tell us that God's presence is everywhere, and while we are told that the person of the Holy Spirit, different person, is within the believer, the biblical answer to where is Jesus is he is reigning as king on his throne. Where is Jesus when Monday hits you hard? He's on the throne. He's ruling and reigning over angels. He rules over his kingdom. Every square inch of existence is his. Now I know that for many of us, this is probably gonna rub us the wrong way because we are naturally suspicious of authority. We hate power. We resist power. And no one wants to be claimed as someone else's. I don't belong to anyone but me. We want to be our own autonomous person. We want to have free reign. We want control. We're control freaks. But this is actually really good news. Because as Jeremy Treat put it, Jesus is a different type of king. A good king. He rules with wisdom, justice, mercy, and self-giving love. He's as patient as he's powerful. He's as beautiful as he's strong. He's as merciful as he is mighty. He's a good king. His power is guided by his love and is always in line with his character. He is the kind of king who uses his power to bless his people. Yes, he's a conquering king. And yes, he is fierce. But what he destroys is that which destroys us. What he comes fiercely against is that which comes against our life. And he defeats his enemies through his own death. And this king triumphs through his own suffering. And he establishes an eternal throne from a Roman wooden cross. The only way for us to come out from under the power of things that enslave us, things that dominate our lives, things that just are like sucking the life out of us, the only way to be truly liberated from sin, from idolatry, and just devastating and destructive habits, the the only way to experience the freedom that our hearts long for most is actually by coming under the authority of a better king, this better king. And I want you to pay attention to a word that is really easy to gloss over. It's found in verse nine. The word is companions. It means those who share in something, those who partake in something. It means friends. And what Hebrews is describing is that Jesus is a king with many companions. A king who intentionally shares. What is his becomes ours. When Jesus is elevated, we are elevated. When he is blessed, we are blessed. What he inherits, we inherit. Verse 14, and are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You know what Jesus does with all that authority in heaven and on earth? You know what he's doing with all that power that is his as the unique royal son of God? What could he possibly want to do with all that power and authority? We're told here he puts it all in service of those who inherit salvation. He directs all of heaven's resources towards those 
who believe. Amen? So the author's just done this excellent job of comparing angels to Jesus. And I know you're probably like me sitting here thinking like, yeah, but still never tempted to worship angels. Like, what is going on here? So let me conclude with a set of questions. I'm curious today, what things have we elevated to the place that Jesus alone belongs? Where have we lost sight of our wonder for Jesus? Has he become small, insignificant, even replaceable in our hearts? And what kind of consideration do you and I need to make today in order to see him as better, as bigger, as more glorious than anything else? In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this scene where it's been a while since young Lucy has seen her or her companions have seen Aslan. It's been a while, and they, they finally see Aslan, who, by the way, is this like Jesus figure. And when she encounters him, she's surprised and says this, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, he answered he. Not because you are, responded Lucy. I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And I think that this is the point of the passage. I think that this is the point of the whole book of Hebrews, by the way. The point is that the more that we grow in our faith in Jesus, the more that we grow in Christ, the bigger and the brighter our vision of him will become. So much so that it will eclipse all other distractions. It will eclipse in our vision everything else that tries to put itself in the position that Jesus alone belongs. And that's the application. We today have to distract our distractions. If you're taking notes, write that down. We've got to distract our distractions. The only way to turn away from the things that are stealing your attention and stealing your affection today is by replacing it with something better, someone way better. What I want to do is I want to close with a prayer from Thomas Akempis, who I think puts this well into words and actually takes everything that's said in Scripture here and everything I've attempted to communicate and turns it into a sort of an inclusive prayer for all the things that may be fighting for our attention today. And so I'd like to ask you to bow with me as I pray this prayer over us. Grant me a most sweet and loving Jesus, to rest in you above every creature, above all health and beauty, above all glory and honor, above all power and dignity, above all joy and exaltation, above all fame and praise, above all sweetness and comfort, above all hope and promise, above all merit and desire, above all gifts and favors which you give and impart to us, above all joy and gladness which the mind is capable of receiving and feeling, and finally, above angels and archangels, and above all the hosts of heaven, above all things visible and invisible, and above all that fall short of yourself. Oh my God, amen. Amen.